0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: If you're a farmer in New York State, join the New York State Grown and Certified Program to let people know your food is grown right, right here. Learn more at certified.ny.gov. I'm Linda
2: Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org
1: for thousands more.
2: Okay, it's Monday and it's... 11.59. Eleven fifty nine. We're a day a minute before for schedule there, Dave. Um, but I've this... got noon
0: in here actually. Oh,
2: really? Okay, my clock is a little slow. <laughs> All right, the okay. The psycho clock. The psycho clock. No, I have straight up twelve o'clock on my clock too. So there you go. You are right. Um, well, <clears throat> after we have established what time it is, now we can tell you what this is. This is. Uh, What Doesn't Kill You? Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer, and you are listening to the Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Um, And we have a really... I, I, not we, I, because I am both host and producer, I have a really great show for you today. Um, But first, we have my favorite part of the day, which is joys and sorrows. Yes, I spend hours, sometimes days, collecting this information for your benefit, my dear listeners. Um, First, I want to celebrate the joy of the fact that the Dakota Access Pipeline uh, has been at least um, somewhat sidelined for the moment. The Army Corps of Engineers, in case you've been living under a rock, has decided that they will not route it through the Indian reservation that they were planning to do. The only question in my mind is, why the hell did it take them so freaking long? I mean, those people have been freezing their buns off now for weeks and weeks and weeks. I mean, just outrageous. The whole idea was outrageous. The idea that it took this long for the Army Corps of Engineers to make the right decision is outrageous. Outrageous that the Obama administration didn't step in right away and put the kibosh on this idea. Um, all in all, I am still outraged for on their behalf. Um, but I am truly glad and joyful that, uh, that the pipeline, for the moment anyway, has been changed shelved. Unfortunately, um, I suspect that there, there are, are greater outrages in our future uh, under the new regime. Uh, we won't call it a presidency. We will call it a regime, uh, because that's what it's going to be. Um, another, uh, a little bit of a sorrow here. This is sort of interesting. I mean, you know, I spend a lot of time reading the trades. Um, so a lot of my information comes from trade magazines, and of course uh, one of my favorite ones is Global Meat News. I urge you all to check out Global Meat News. It's It's a real bellwether for what's happening in the world. In many, many ways, you'd be surprised at how much you can extrapolate from the information in Global Meat News. But one thing I did find out today is that sadly the avian flu, otherwise known as bird flu, has been uh, ongoing in Europe and in Asia uh, over the last few weeks and quite seriously so in Japan um, and probably pretty seriously so in Europe, although they're not really, really reporting all their numbers yet. But since it is transmitted by wild bird droppings, it is entirely likely that we will see it here in the U.S. sooner rather than later. We probably already have a few cases, um, but it hasn't come on to the uh, 2015 saw a huge outbreak and literally millions of birds slaughtered as a result. So um, later on in the show, we're going to be talking about price fixing in the poultry market. Um, But in fact, the bird shortages from avian flu could well occur uh, quite naturally and have the same impact of raising prices in as much alongside of the uh, price fixing that has been going on in the poultry industry over the last year or so. You're going to learn a lot about that in just a minute. We're going to have a great show with um, the wonderful, the excellent, and the most prolific uh, journalist Christopher Leonard, author of The Meat Rack, one of my favorite books and something that everyone should have on their reading list. Um, And by the way, in other meaty news for you, uh, the USDA and the Food Safety and Inspection Service is mulling over revising the nutritional facts panel on meat products. So in addition to updating the daily reference values based on current dietary recommendations, they are also proposing to change the labeling requirements for food, quote, aimed specifically at children under four and lactating women, as well as developing nutrient reference values for those groups. Now, I think that's interesting, but. Um, for very various reasons, but what really interests me is that they don't label um, these products as having significant risk factors for those groups, as well as the elderly, um, because most chicken in this country carries a significant quantity of drug-resistant pathogens, primarily salmonella, and those are particularly dangerous to pregnant women, to children, and to the elderly. So I was thinking of something along the lines of, like, the warning label on a pack of smokes, you know what I mean? Like, warning the surgeon general advises you— yeah, I mean, they really should have, they do have, you know, cooking temperatures. They tell you to cook it up to a certain degree. But there really should be a warning label about the pathogens on meat products in this country because, quite honestly, you splash some water around with some salmonella and it sticks to your sink, to your sponge, to your, you know, dishcloth, whatever. I mean, I am increasingly hypervigilant uh, about uh, poultry and how I process it in my own kitchen. Not that I buy a lot of con- of uh you know, commercial poultry, but, um, but I do. I buy, I buy, you know, what is, you know, sort of mainstream Bell and Evans or, um, you know, organic poultry products. And, and because they are mass produced, they're going to have a lot of the same issues. Um, so even if you buy those organic things, don't imagine to yourselves that if they're in a, if they that they're any safer, because quite honestly, they probably won't be. Um, uh, Another meaty thing that I learned today in uh, Global Meat News, or maybe it was Food Navigator, another one of my favorite sites, Mark Post, the man behind the fake meat, the uh, test tube meat, he created this product at the University of Maastricht a few years ago. I think it was 2013. um, And the first go round of it cost something like $100,000 to produce the equivalent of a burger. Um, He's now got the price down to about $11 per burger-sized serving. Um, But he is predicting that within seven years, we will be seeing his product in grocery stores. So you heard it here first. In seven years, we'll all be eating burgers made out of um, animal protein that has been cultured in a Petri dish or in a test tube. I think that's a pretty interesting prospect. Um, And lastly, uh, there is this is a sorrow. This will be my last little entry for this week but there is a wonderful dutch organization called food watch and that awards uh, something called the golden egg to products with the most misleading uh labels of uh to products with the most misleading labels and in 2016 i am devastated to announce that my very favorite caffeinated beverage red bull has been included apparently it doesn't give you wings it gives you love handles and sleepless nights who knew? <laughs> and I'm sorry to say that on top of my morning Red Bull, I am now also ingested the better part of a cup of coffee. So if my speech becomes increasingly unintelligible, you will know that it's because I have like <laughs> I, I, I'm driving a train loaded on caffeine. <laughs> So with that, my friends, uh, I will uh, allow my my dear Dave, the engineer, to uh, run our sponsor drop and then we will be right back with the incredible Chris Leonard. We're going to have a wonderful conversation so please stay tuned and um, listen up and pay attention to our sponsor drop and we'll see you in just a second.
0: And this one's called Poetry is Dead by Teeth People. We'll be right back.
1: She's her own female She's her own that's why I like her, I like her lot not New York State cares about New York's farmers. That's why we've developed the New York State Grown and Certified Program. It's a seal New Yorkers can look for when they're shopping for food that comes from local farms. Customers are more likely to buy food that has the New York State Grown and Certified seal because it tells them that it comes from a farm that follows environmentally responsible, farm-safe protocols. In other words, the New York State Grown and Certified SEAL tells them their food is grown right, right here in New York State. You're a farmer with a lot to do, but the time it takes to sign up for the program is a great investment for your business because it lets shoppers know that your food meets higher standards, has passed assessments, and is produced by environmentally friendly farming practices. To learn about participating in the program, go to certified.ny.gov. That's right. This is what doesn't kill you,
2: Food Industry Insights. This is your host, Katie Kiefer, at the microphone. And on the telephone with me today is Chris Leonard. Christopher Leonard is a former national business reporter for the Associated Press. His work has appeared in Fortune Bloomberg Businessweek, Slate, and The Wall Street Journal. He is a Schmidt Family Foundation fellow with the New America Foundation, a nonpartisan public policy institute in Washington, D.C. His first book, The Meat Racket, The Secret Takeover of America's Food Business, brought him here to this show in 2014. And he is now working on his second book, A Profile of Coke Industries. And by the way, he had a fantastic piece uh, on Bloomberg, no, Yeah, Bloomberg News, uh, I think last week, um, about the pipeline break in Alabama and the the multiple pipeline breaks, I should say, um, in Alabama that uh, speaks to the um, dwindling infrastructure in the oil business, um, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, I urge you to read that. And in the meantime, welcome to the show, Chris. Thanks so much for coming back.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate
2: it. Oh, I really appreciate your time. Um, I loved that article, by the way. Tell me that it was on Bloomberg News, right?
3: Yeah, yeah, it was It was in Business Week, and uh, the title was A Pipeline Runs Through It, uh, based on that novel, you know, A River Runs yes. Through It, because part of it is it goes by this really ecologically sensitive river called the Cahaba River in Alabama.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, it was, it was a very good story um, and something that we should all be thinking about because all of that pipeline infrastructure is really pretty old at this point, isn't it? I mean, wasn't that an example of a pipeline that's been around? I don't know if you said this in the article. I don't remember it. But it seems to me that most of the pipeline in this country was laid quite a while ago. And just like our, our bridges and our roads, it probably needs a lot of attention that it's not getting.
3: Exactly. The pipeline at the center of that article was built in 1962. Oh, jeez. A lot of the pipeline we have is that old and aging, and I'm sure you saw in the news today uh, a pipeline in in North Dakota uh, near the Standing Rock Indian Reservation was just blocked. And that's just one one piece of a large uh, movement against new pipeline construction across the United States. So we're seeing aging infrastructure and this sort of intense debate about whether or not we should build new infrastructure that would lock us into more fossil fuel use for 40, 50 years.
2: Absolutely. I know it's, it's yeah. a very – it's a perplexing problem because – uh, building new pipelines means fewer of these accidents and spills, but also, as you point out, it means more that we'll be continuing to use them uh, in the coming 50 years until they start breaking down again. And by then, I hope we have some other form of energy. Anyway, let's Please. talk about what you've been doing. So you've been um, you have been working on a new book. Uh, sorry, you have been. Working on a new article, I should say um, that is going to be appearing sometime soon that talks about antitrust and the monopolies the monopolization of the meat industry so can we um, can we start this segment by talking about the history of the consolidation of the meat industry and the sort of impact of the Sherman Antitrust Act, which happened oh what i don 't know seventy years ago, eighty years ago.
3: Oh, more than that. I mean, the Sherman Antitrust Act was passed in the 1890s. Oh, of course it was, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then you you saw more laws added on top of that, the Clayton Act. Mm Mm-hmm. Hart-Rodino, things along those lines more recently. So, But, yeah, I mean, antitrust enforcement has been around for a long time, and kind of paradoxically we've seen just greater and greater consolidation in lots of industries in the U.S., but really particularly in the meat business. Mm-hmm.
2: Meat and agriculture in general, because, of course, we've seen this wave of, of consolidation in the seed industry and in the uh, agricultural chemical industries with the mm-hmm. Monsanto Bayer, with uh, DuPont Pioneer, um, Ed Syngenta, etc. But um, the Sherman Antitrust Act was meant to break up the monopolies of four big meat packers, as you say, back in the 1890s, early 20th century. Um, and why, why, why isn't the Sherman Act and the and the uh, subsequent Clayton Act and the the Hart Scott Rodino Act in 1978? Why are they not doing the same job now? What's what's happened?
3: So. A lot has happened. And I mean, quickly, maybe it's helpful to kind of talk about why those laws were passed in the first place. A hundred years ago, just like you said, there were five companies known as the, quote, meat trust that controlled, just had tremendous control over the national market for meat. And and what they did was they used the monopolist's playbook that really hasn't changed in Mm -hmm. 200 years. And here's how it works. These companies like Armour and Swift had so much control over the national market that they became really powerful middlemen. And what they did was twofold. First of all, they depressed what they paid to farmers and ranchers to raise animals. They artificially lowered the prices that they paid for their product, which squeezed farmers and ranchers. And then they turned around on the opposite side, and they raised, they artificially raised prices and made meat more expensive for consumers. So when you do that, you capture the outsized profits in the middle. And of course, they did all kinds of other stuff, like bought Congress people and had really reprehensible conditions in their plants, etc. But I, I think the basic mechanisms that we care about are those two, where they depress what they pay farmers and they raise prices for consumers. So people were furious about this. I mean. There was just broad public distaste and outcry for this kind of corporate control that existed for decades in the United States. Mm -hmm. And it took a lot of work, not just to get these antitrust laws passed, but to get them actively enforced. And that's what you really saw starting to happen in the early 1920s, is the federal government stepped in and tried to, break apart these monopolies, because when a company gains a sort of monopoly position in the marketplace, by definition, the market can't heal itself. These firms are start start distorting the laws of supply and demand, and, mm-hmm. and the market can't really heal itself anymore. So the federal government stepped in to break apart these monopolies and restore competition. And it was really remarkably successful. Let's just take the period of you know 1945 up to about 1978 and you saw that the grasp and control of the meat trust was thoroughly broken we had lots of producers we had lots of competition we had lots of innovation in the meat industry mm. it, it was what i kind of call plug-and-play capitalism where you have a smart entrepreneur in iowa who wants to raise hogs well they can get into this market because it's open it's competitive and they can raise products and sell them in transparent marketplaces and that, and that's what we saw for decades in the United States.
2: That's right. And what's interesting to me about this um, is that, you know, when you talk about uh, sort of the meat trust, we have that Mm -hmm. now we have four major meat packers in this country. When you talk about deplorable conditions, uh, we have that now (laughs) in every single meat packing plant, basically that's run by most of these people. I mean, I shouldn't say every single one, but the conditions really are deplorable, especially in the in the poultry industry. So nothing there has changed. Um, what else can we draw parallels with? Oh, uh, beating uh, farmers down on price. I wanted to ask you about that for a second because the way they did it, um, the way they do it now is that because the industry has consolidated to only just – really a few companies controlling all, almost all of the processing in the United States. Um, that means that farmers can only go to certain processors um, sort of within whatever, however many hundreds or thousands of miles near them. And that requires um, accepting the prices that they are offered because they don't have any place else to go with their products. Was that the same in the 1890s and early 20th century that there was a limited amount of processing available and that's how they were able to squeeze the farmers and ranchers? Or was it a different mechanism at that time?
3: It was similar. It was very similar, except really the truth is it is worse today. Yeah. Okay. The The, the meat trust that exists today has far more market concentration than that that existed 100 years ago. <laughs> today, four companies control 85% of the beef processing. Three poultry companies control almost half of, of the national market for chicken. So. Right. Today, the venues that farmers have to choose between, to sell into, the people who they can do business with are are fewer than really any any time in U.S. history. But there's kind of another story here that's really important for this, which is Mm -hmm. that your farmer today is very, very different from the farmer of 1915 because, right. The yeah, I think of a poultry farmer today as really being like a mid-size or small factory owner. I mean Absolutely. I mean, this will be a couple or an individual that has borrowed $2 million to build... A complex of maybe seven very large warehouses where they'll raise um, tens of thousands of birds at a time with automatic feeders, automatic watering systems, etc. So the farmers of today are, are much larger in scale, they're much more industrialized, uh, and yet when they have, you know, when they face a market to sell their products to, like you say, let's just look at poultry farmers. Mm-hmm. It, w- it was shocking to me That's how the meat racket started, is years ago, as a reporter covering this business, and you see these really high-tech chicken houses and the whole infrastructure around it is really astounding, Mm. but you turn around to, to try to sell these animals, and these farmers have have one company to sell to realistically in many cases. I mean, they are facing not some abstract, but a very real monopoly. Uh, in a town like Waldron, for example, Waldron, Arkansas, where I did a lot of reporting for the book, these farmers, many of them, there's only one company in their geographic area that they could sell to, and they had no choice, but not just to take the price that Tyson Foods owned them, owed them, rather, or offered them, but to operate under all the conditions that Tyson dictated. I mean, the imbalance of power is just really incredible.
2: Yeah, and I think it it, it bears stressing that if you are somebody who owns 20,000 birds, you must have a packer who can take those birds all at once and then distribute them. It's not like you, the farmer, can like get your truck take them, you know, some a few hundred birds somewhere else and then, you know, distribute them yourself or something like that. It's not possible with those kinds of numbers. And yet, in order to survive in the poultry industry as a grower, you must do that many numbers. So it's it's they really do have people hamstrung by this lack of processing options. And I think that's something that most people never really think about when they think about how this whole system works. And this is also true in the hog industry and to a certain extent in the cattle industry and there was a lot of, as you know, there was a lot of, well, we're going to get into it in a second, so I'm going to move on. I'm not going to go on yapping because nobody's tuning in to listen to me talk. They're listening to you. So let me let me ask you one more question about these rules, about these, these laws that were passed, um, including the Hart-Scott-Rodino Act in 1978, which says that firms must notify the antitrust authorities of their intent to merge and allow the transaction to be reviewed before it is executed. And then on top of that, there are also the Grain Inspection Packers Stockyard Act, GYPSA, uh Grain Inspection uh, Packers Stockyard Act uh, rules that are supposed to guarantee fair prices and fair competition. Now, why are none of these controls effective? Like, is that because there's no enforcement? Is it because... I don't know because there's no enforcement. (laughs) Uh,
3: uh, If if only it was just that. I mean, this is the million dollar question. You know, Uh I just said maybe a few minutes ago that by the 70s we had this really competitive, vigorous, open market Mm -hmm. for producing meat. What the heck happened? Great question. The Hart Rodino Act that you just mentioned is enforce fully today Mm -hmm. and requires any companies that want to merge to submit to federal authorities who need to approve that merger on the basis of competition. So how in the heck did we get to this point today where three companies control half the chicken market and can control what they pay farmers? Lots of things happen. Let me just, you know, one quick thing this stuff is complicated and is sort of invisible to most people but let's just take one really important example uh... nineteen eighty when ronald reagan was elected he appointed a guy named william f baxter to be head of antitrust enforcement Mm. and william f baxter sends out a memo to the department of justice antitrust enforcement team to say hey we're going to change how we regulate competition all these companies are going to submit petitions to us to merge, and we're going to think about it in a different way. Instead of caring about consolidation alone, you know, instead of blocking mergers just because it'll give companies a large share of the market, we're going to focus on efficiency or or, or the price to consumer. And what I mean by that is. Mm-hmm we will let these firms merge, we'll let these industries get highly consolidated as long as the companies can prove to us that each merger is going to save money for the consumer. It -hmm. it was really a radical departure uh, from previous decades of antitrust enforcement. You know, my dad was a Republican corporate attorney who specialized in antitrust, and I remember him telling me antitrust cases dropped off a cliff in the 80s. No they kidding. just disappeared for this reason. Now, we're learning a lesson from this, which is that when you let the business consolidate and when you let the structure change so much, even when these companies say, hey, if you let us get bigger, we're going to make things cheaper, you start to see the effects of monopoly power exert themselves mm-hmm. over time. Even, uh, even if the upfront argument is that we can do it cheaper because we're going to be bigger, etc and i think that there's evidence that that's what we've seen but regardless during the 80s and 90s under this new regime you just see a sweeping wave of mergers occur and, and the market power of the few remaining firms who bought out all their competitors just rises dramatically and then quickly i don't want to just go on too much but you you know you talk about okay fine so that happens but then what about the fact that the US Department of Agriculture has an entire office whose job is to do nothing but to police antitrust (laughs) statutes for farming. That's literally what they do every day when they come to work. And that's a really, really interesting story with a lot of history, but I'll just put it this way, which is that, you know, this is a political organization with people who run it. And I interviewed a lot of people that ran this agency over the decades called the Packers and Stockyards Administration, Mm -hmm. and they make political decisions about what they're going to do. And it is just documented that they decided not to vigorously enforce these laws that were created in the 1920s under the Packers and Stockyards administration. Don't take my word for it. There's GAO report after GAO report from the 90s talking about papers being hidden in drawers, complaints never followed up on, a dysfunctional system. Mm -hmm. And so you got the regulators not going after it as aggressively. And then quickly to end this, they you know, lawyers are real, real smart people, and these companies can hire the best and the brightest lawyers. And they had a very smart tactic of suing the Packers and Stockyards administration or defending suits in a way that reshaped the law over time. There were a number of appeals courts' decisions that found that if I, Chris Leonard, chicken farmer, want to sue Tyson Foods under the Packers and Stockyards Act... I have to prove that Tyson's action toward me didn't just hurt me, but hurt the entire state of competition. Mm. That, that putting my chicken business, uh, my chicken farm out of business, has to harm the entire state of competition in the national chicken market. That was an almost unprovable burden. And that's why you've seen cases under the PSA really decline. And, and the agency, according to people inside of it, really lost its teeth thanks to the string of appeals court rulings.
2: Fascinating, Chris. Oh, my God. We could do a whole show just on that. But let us, as you say, let us move on because as you reported in the article uh, that was that I picked up on in the um, Food and Environmental Reporting Network in Fern, um, you, there was an effort by Tom Vilsack in 2011 to impose some new reforms on the industry, but there was so much pushback from industry and from Congress, our paid-off paid for, bought and sold congressional representatives that nothing happened. So just give us a thumbnail of what that battle was about. And what was the USDA and farmers and ranchers? What were they trying to achieve? Were they trying to like push back on some of this um, price fixing? Were they were they seeking antitrust regulations? What what exactly were they looking for?
3: Sure, you bet. First of all, All the stuff I just described has been well documented in the public record and has been going on for decades. Mm -hmm. So by the year 2008, when Barack Obama is elected, you have had farmers from across rural America filing lawsuits, complaining to the representatives, in Iowa senators in Iowa like Harkin and Grassley have been Mm -hmm. trying to beat this drum that we've entered sort of a new era of, of, of corporate power in this realm. And so Obama is elected and hires a team of pretty hardcore reformers to head up this USDA agency I mentioned, the Packers and Stockyards Administration. And mm-hmm. they say, hey, we are going to come in here and address these concerns that have been expressed in political venues and lawsuits for years. Mm-hmm. And they they proposed a new set of, of rules that would – change the power relationship and essentially strengthen the antitrust laws. Just one of the rules would have undone that whole thing about um, harm to competition that I just talked about, right. that that big barrier to filing a PSA suit. I mean, Vilsack told me that that was an unrealistic threshold, basically, for a lawsuit, and they were going to try to undo that and put out clear guidance from USDA that would sort of overturn or or speak clearly against these appeals court decisions. So anyway, there was a raft of stuff that they proposed doing when Obama came into office uh, that gets down into sort of the mechanics of how these companies can depress prices to farmers. That was really sort of the ground zero for this fight, was farmers not being economically exploited by these companies. The consumer stuff sort of comes later. And uh, short story, they proposed these rules and just got their lunch eaten by the meat industry lobbyists. I've <laughs> never seen anything <laughs> like it in my reporting career. Uh, the effort, let's just say the effort was absolutely abandoned. Uh, Congress passed writers to defund it every single year Amazing. and it lays in tatters.
2: And that, that that effort was no doubt led by people like Chuck Grassley. Um, because I have no doubt that in Iowa, you know, this was something particularly uh, unpleasant for them. And I imagine people in
3: North Carolina, too, right? Yeah, and and I don't mean to contradict you. It is very interesting to me. Chuck Grassley is actually not black and white on this thing. He's he's put out a lot lot of statements that are pro-competition and sort of pro-farmer and anti-consolidation. And, um, you know... A lot of the folks who killed this thing were Southern Democrats in um, poultry producing states like Georgia. Ah. I'm thinking David, David Scott uh, was one of those. So it, the, the politics on this issue is just so weird, to be honest. And it right. kind of doesn't fit in directly into Republican Democrat mold in, in many ways.
2: No, it just fits into who's been bought by who, uh, evidently. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> I said that, that, not idea. you. <laughs> I don't mind saying things like that, because why not? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't have to worry that Tyson is listening to me. Um... <laughs> The industry, when they, when when some of these reforms were proposed uh, in 2011 by Vilsack et al, um, the industry said that the new rules would set them back by 50 years. Like, what did they mean by that? Like, what? How, how would it set them back? It would reduce their efficiency if they were forced to spin off into smaller companies, or what? What are they talking about? Like, what kind of a defense is that?
3: Yeah, I mean, honestly, th- this is the way I take it and I don't think I'm putting words in anyone's mouth. I talked to uh, Mark Dopp, the head lobbyist of the American Meat Institute, Mm -hmm. and what he meant by that was that these regulations would push back and unwind the new model of meat production, which is highly consolidated and centrally controlled. Uh, You know, just quickly, I mean, these poultry companies are what we call vertically integrated. They control all the means of production. The farmers... Are essentially employees who raise chickens under contract. We're seeing more and more hogs produced this way under Absolutely. contract without open markets to sell the product. We're seeing it increasing in, in the cattle space of more and more feedlots raising animals under contract for a big meat packer. Mm-hmm. And, and what the AMI was saying is if you pass these rules, it is going to break this machine apart, break these networks apart and make things much less efficient for us and messy but in a way you have to say that was kind of the stated goal of the regulation which is to sort of start to unwind the control that these few firms have over the marketplace so in a way i think that they were accurate to say this would have pushed the industry back fifty years in some regards and by that i just mean in terms of competition and the open markets and if you look at the business fifty years ago the top four producers controlled something like twenty percent of the market instead of eighty percent of the market.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it's yeah it's, it's it's it'll set them back fifty years in terms of of having to rediscover how to function within a competitive marketplace as opposed to um, setting prices. I want to I want to quickly move along though because um, what your article was talking about was was exactly this the sort of. Yeah. Um, Consolidation of the market, and um, you made one point that I thought was really interesting, which is that the wholesalers um, seem to have more clout in terms of of affecting change in the antitrust uh, arena than the USDA itself. Um, inasmuch as that these various wholesalers brought a very major suit um, for um, grievances surrounding price fixing, and they and they brought it against uh, Tyson, Pilgrim's Pride, um, and a couple of the other big uh, poultry packers. Um, Tell us about that suit and what what it might achieve. Are they going to are they going to win these wholesalers? Um, and, and and explain what what exactly they were their grievance was.
3: You, you bet. And this is the most significant and interesting thing to happen in this issue for eight years. Yeah. Um, I mentioned before that monopolists, um, and I'm not saying that these companies have monopoly power. I guess I just want to be careful, but. The problem with monopoly power is that you can depress what you pay farmers and raise prices for consumers. Most of the action in this space has been around what happens to farmers on that side of the equation. Now, what's happening to consumers is um, the, the developments here have been much more recent. It's much more on the cutting edge. And there was a lawsuit filed this year, the Friday before Labor Day, which essentially argues that a handful of large chicken companies, including Tyson Foods, uh, Pilgrim's Pride, Purdue, the, the suit argues that these firms have so much power that they can essentially coordinate with one another and cut supplies of chicken in a way that raises prices. They can collude to hold supplies off the market to keep prices high. That is the allegation of this lawsuit. Right. And, and as you kind of point out, it's interesting to me that the Department of Justice has been quiet on this issue, as has USDA, and it, this suit is coming from the private sector. And mm-hmm. looking through this suit, you can see that they've done a lot of research, but a lot of it was from publicly available forums and and, and outlets. They don't have subpoena power, and it seems like this is a kind of action that could have been brought relatively easy. Easily by DOJ, but it's being brought by private sector lawyers representing these wholesalers who would have been hurt if there had been illegal collusion. Mm -hmm.
2: So these are essentially the people who are suing these big companies, Tyson, Purdue, Pilgrim's Pride, et al. These are the guys, the middlemen, essentially. They're the guys who buy at a wholesale level from the big companies, and they're reselling it into retail outlets, whether it be grocery stores, restaurants, institutions, Correct.
3: Absolutely. So the, the lead plaintiff is a, a company called Maplevale Farms. And yes, they, these are the wholesalers who are going to buy the semi-truckload of chicken from Tyson Foods right? and then turn it around and sell it to a grocery store. But I do want to say, if this thing goes forward and goes to its ultimate conclusion, it would... There there could be a class of plaintiffs in this suit that would just be anyone who buys chicken, and that's 95% of Americans <laughs> have been hypothetically harmed right. by these allegations. By price-fixing,
2: by price-fixing. And, 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 and the way they've been doing it is by holding chickens off the market, killing off breeder flocks. um, so that there is a short supply. Isn't that right? Isn't that what they've been doing? And they've all been sort of, according to the suit, they've been colluding at doing this kind of across the board, across the the various companies. Am I correct in that?
3: Let me, I just, all caps, disclaimer, I'm being super careful in what I say Yeah, yeah, I understand. So the allegation in the suit, well, well, let me just say what I know from my own reporting, which is that a company like Tyson Foods does strategically cut supplies when prices are low mm-hmm. to keep supplies off the market and raise the price i mean that's common sense right sure. but what's di- what's different today is that tyson foods owns the production infrastructure that used to be owned by over a dozen companies, you know, because Tyson bought out all its competitors or many of its competitors during the 1980s. So it has tremendous leverage to cut supplies and raise prices. It was really sort of unheard of 20 years ago. Now, the suit alleges there's another layer to this, which is that Tyson Foods has been colluding or orchestrating these production cuts with its competitors, Mm -hmm. such as Pilgrim's Pride. That's what the suit alleges. And if that's the case, well, then you surely do cross a red line on antitrust law, which bans collusion. So, yeah, yeah, what they're saying is that these companies um, are strategically keeping supplies off the market to raise prices. Fascinating.
2: Okay. And then uh, once this, um, we're going to talk about more about that in a second but i also wanted to point out that there you know when i was doing the research for this interview i read up on the fact that there has been a wave of what they call follow on suits for that are brought by shareholders for violating federal security laws where quote false and misleading end quote, information was disseminated to said shareholders on the value of the company as a result of their price fixing. So can you explain how that works and what the impact on the share prices was and and what does this all mean, you know, in sort of the bigger picture?
3: You bet. And let me just say, I've been reporting on this, I mean, shoot, for 12, 13 years. What's happened is stunning. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, the, these, this lawsuit was filed before Labor Day. Tyson Foods alone, their stock is down about 22% from the day this lawsuit was filed. Wow. Tyson Foods' CEO, who's named in the suit, mm-hmm. um, now stepped down recently and is replaced by the president. Might have nothing to do with the suit, but the stock fell dramatically even after that CEO stepped down.
2: Was that Donnie so, Smith? Was that that Correct.
3: That's Donnie Smith, Mm -hmm. who I interviewed for the book, and he talked kind of at length about cutting supplies to keep prices high. Mm. So he stepped down, might have nothing to do with this suit, but Wall Street sure is nervous about the whole thing. And those lawsuits you're talking about are shareholder lawsuits saying, hey, Tyson Foods, you should have disclosed to us this risk. Mm -hmm. that that's happened and and frankly it's sort of relatively common when you see an event like this tank or or, i'm sorry when it hurt the value of a company's stock you'll see shareholders step in and say hey you were not giving us the full picture now Mm -hmm. how successful any of those suits will be on behalf of shareholders who say tyson should have told them more about this is really an open question
2: yeah well, so what do these actions mean in terms of, <clears throat> for example, the farmers? And what, what about for consumers? Like if the price, say, say for example, the price fixing, fixing suit is successful and Tyson and their cohorts are, in fact, found guilty of colluding to fix prices, um, what will that mean for consumers? Will it have any impact on pricing going forward or and what will it mean for farmers? Will it have any impact on what they're paid per bird or per pound? What, what is the ultimate outcome? Or is it really just about the share prices and people who own stock in those companies?
3: Oh, no, 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 no. This is huge, mm-hmm. potentially, for both consumers and farmers. And it's it's almost hard to think about it and unpack what might happen. I mean, this lawsuit is tremendous. The financial damages from this lawsuit, if it were to be successful, would be in the billions of dollars. Oh. And the attorneys are also seeking injunctive relief that would stop a lot of industry practices that these lawyers allege are anti-competitive. So it's sort of even hard to think about, but hypothetically, you know, it could mean for consumers that chicken prices would be lower. Um, It certainly could be a headache for large chicken companies because you know historically this industry's been defined by volatility and boom and bust prices and this lawsuit is saying that a stability of prices is anti-competitive so these farmers could see, I'm sorry the the companies could see more of a return to the past where prices go up and down more i think that there's just no question that that would mean to consumers that prices would ultimately be lower going forward the impact on farmers is secondary to this whole lawsuit but could be significant uh and i'll just l- leave it at that because i mean some of the allegations in this suit um, it, you know if the injunctions are are put down it, it could change you know, parts of the machine um, and and could change business practices for farmers. I'm well, sorry to be so vague.
2: No, uh, you're not. I'm, I, one thing I actually you make what you make me think of now is that I think we should explain for people who haven't read the Meat Racket, <clears throat> incredible as that may be,
3: because I consider <laughs> it
2: required reading. I I think you should just briefly encapsulate what exactly takes place in a contract growing situation that explains how it is companies are able to keep. Prices low for contract farmers because there is a very complex machinery behind that in terms of the way the contract is written, the lack of, of transparency in pricing, and um, the requirements uh, that are placed on farmers uh, in order to be able to continue to to be awarded those contracts. So, can you just give us a quick little thumbnail of how that works, and then maybe people will be able to see how these how these suits have will ha- may well have an impact on the people who are in the business of growing birds.
3: Absolutely. Thank you. Perfect. And it's, first of all, stunning. It's like nothing I've ever seen before. I've covered lots of different industries. The, the chicken farming is stands alone. It's just a v- almost unique method of production in agriculture. It's amazing. So the key term is vertical integration. Uh, picture a town where lots of chicken is being raised 40 years ago, you would have a local hatchery that sold eggs. You'd have Mm -hmm. farmers who raised birds. You'd have a slaughterhouse that bought the birds and slaughtered them. You'd have truckers who shipped the birds to the farm and then back to the slaughterhouse. These all used to be independent businesses. Mm -hmm. That changed starting around the 1960s, and you saw, quote-unquote, vertically integrated poultry production emerge as just a dominant model. And what that means is, you've got one massive Tyson food foods plant in the middle of town with a hatchery, a slaughterhouse, and a feed mill, and a trucking line. All of it's owned by Tyson Foods. They, the farm is interesting in that it sort of stands apart. You've got these nominally independent chicken farmers who borrow millions of dollars from a bank, build a bunch of chicken houses, and then sign a contract to raise the birds for Tyson Foods. So Tyson delivers the baby chicks to the farm. And then picks them up six weeks later. Incidentally, Tyson owns the birds the entire time. The chicken farmer never owns the most important asset on their farm, which is the birds. Unless they're dead. Oh, very good point. When the bird dies, (laughs) uh, ownership can transfer to the farmer. Tyson owns the feed. It formulates the feed. It picks the uh, variety and genetics of the bird that's delivered it sends veterinarians out to the farm to check on the birds this used to be kind of a recipe for stability that's why farmers signed up in the 60s and 70s right. as Tyson said hey your baby basically babysitting these birds you'll get a steady paycheck we'll take a lot of the risk out of the bargain but as as the business has consolidated you've seen a lot of change that essentially at the top line is that farmers get paid less for raising birds through lots of different mechanisms, but so how does this apply to what we're talking about? What this means now is Tyson Foods, for example, and Pilgrim's Pride's the same way, produce the same way. Sanders Company. yep, yeah, they all do it. They all do it. with Tyson, thousands of chicken farms are now under the essential control of one company. And and there's an office in Springdale, Arkansas, where Tyson is based, where the supply chain group is a, a bunch of people sitting around computers, modeling out how many chickens they need to raise in a given quarter, what kinds of chickens they need to be raised. And then those orders are sort of transmitted out from the central office to thousands of farms throughout rural America. and. They control down to the egg essentially how many chickens are gonna be placed on each farm mm-hmm. and how many flocks of birds a farmer gets each each year. These levers are, are subtly controlled and shifted at, at this central location. So when Tyson realizes, oh, you know, heck, next quarter looks pretty bad. They'll dial back, the number of chicks are going to place. they will incrementally increase the number of out time, the, the amount of out time between flocks at these farms, mm-hmm. and control production. Well, what that means for me as a farmer in Arkansas is that maybe I'm going to get five flocks this year instead of six, which Is a big hit to my income. That's right. At the same time, I've got fixed prices for my rent and energy costs. Now, Mm -hmm. this is just the tip of the iceberg, but that's one way to think about how some of these tactics can really impact farmers in rural America and how little control these farmers actually have over their operations. Mm-hmm.
2: It also highlights why it's so important to be aware of these monopolization or monopolistic practices. Uh, and as a consumer, because we're sort of running out of time, I'm going to ask you if you, because um, this is not, by the way, uh, just for those who are listening, this model is not unique at all to the poultry industry. The hog industry has basically followed it um, lock, stock, and barrel. And the cattle industry, as Chris said earlier in the show, uh, is following it in terms of how they manage feedlots, um, all although cattle ranching is is a, quite a bit more independent than um, than either of the other two uh, protein groups but <clears throat> chris what, what what way would you suggest that that consumers can fight back against this should we, you know should they stop buying that kind of poultry or can they write letters to their congressmen or you know what is the remedy for this I mean to support uh, con- congressional representation um, you know in a now completely republican controlled congress is is kind of um, you know, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I hope it works, but what else can we do? What, what, How do consumers deal with this?
3: Yeah. And of course, you know, standard disclaimer, my job is to report facts and give them to people to make decisions. And I always get a little queasy in terms of getting into the advocacy part of telling people <laughs> what to do. But I get this question We're all the time. We're counting on you. <laughs> okay. I get this question all the time. Sure and do. I will say... If you're troubled by what's happening in the meat industry, there's an immediate opt-out option that, unfortunately, is a little more inconvenient and costs more money. But across the country, there are entrepreneurs in this space who are raising birds and selling them directly to consumers at local farmers' markets. Uh, We bought our Thanksgiving turkey from a great farm called North Mountain Pastures in Pennsylvania, and uh, I know the farmer directly. It was more expensive. There's no doubt about that. And we get our chicken from the same place. And people can do that immediately if they just want to opt out. Now, there are
2: also some bigger companies like Emmer, like Hip Chicks. Um, there are new big poultry companies that are coming up um, that I think, I don't know for sure, but I don't think they practice quite the same way as the Tysons, Purdues, Sandersons. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. But do you know about those, do you know about those, co- those companies?
3: No, you're teaching me something here, oh I, yeah <laughs> I'm not familiar with those and
2: um well i've been looking i want to do an article about i want to write a piece about who is doing it right, and I must say that it is not easy to find these companies um and it is not easy to get a lot of information about it, but I'm sort of working my way towards that and and those are two poultry companies that that's that you know leapt out at me um there's another one called Smart Chicken, I think. Um, that is also uh, it's it's nationally distributed into grocery stores as our Emmer, as are chicks, although those tend to be West Coast. But Smart Chicken is here on the East Coast. And I'm sure there are some other regional productions, uh, production uh, companies that are, you know, familiar to people who live around the country uh, who might be listening. But that, to me, is the way to, f- you know, to fight back. Don't buy those big uh, company birds. Don't buy those value added products. Um, not that I want to tell people what to do, but I do. I love to tell people what to do. Huh. Um, but before we go, because we have to leave in a few minutes, I want you to talk about the piece that you've been working on, which was the genesis of this conversation, and where people can access it, and when it's going to be published, if you know that, and um, how much more they're going to learn.
3: Oh, well, um, so I'm reporting more, and I'm sorry to be lame. I'm reporting more on this. Topic uh, and and uh, the antitrust issues relating to consumers and potential you know supply, uh, strategic supply cuts and things along those lines. I really hope the article is going to be along soon and and maybe kind of open a window into um, you know how some of this stuff works and and how the the supply of chicken works. It's just it's really interesting. It's really surprising, and I don't think many people. Uh, know how it works. So I'll just, if it's okay, kind of leave it at that. And okay. I really hope the article's out soon. It, it would have been out a lot sooner if that tragic pipeline explosion hadn't happened right. in Alabama.
2: Um, you have a website, Chris?
3: Yeah, it's uh, Christopher Leonard, all one word, dot .biz, or you can just Google the meat racket and Christopher Leonard and see that, and it's got some of the articles up there too, and uh, again, I'm hoping this new one will be out relatively soon.
2: That's great. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. People, read The Meat Racket. I mean, honest to God, I learned so much from that book. Um, I can't thank you enough for writing it, Chris. You and Ted Genoways are two of my favorite journalists, and Maren McKenna, of course, who I also love. Um, and, uh, and you know, it was incredibly helpful to me when I was writing my own tiny little book that's coming out next uh, spring, But um, which I will be making you promote shamelessly. No. <laughs>
3: I look forward to it. Maybe I'll get the chance to turn the tables and interview you oh, in your book. That would be what, awesome.
2: Um but what's anyway, what's the matter
3: with me, right?
2: Yeah, that's right. What's the matter with me? Well, I'm going to tell you.
3: I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> but people
2: are going to learn a lot more from reading your book than they are from mine. Mine is a global survey, so it's a it's a little more, you know, enormous a topic, so and a very short book. But anyway, enough about me and more about you. So Chris Leonard, thank you so much for uh, joining me. People buy Chris Leonard's book. Oh, and um, Chris, I'm going to say goodbye, but now I'm going to read a a thing about supporting... Sorry, about supporting the radio station. So, Chris, thank you very much for uh, being on the show. And you and I will be in constant conversation in the future. Happy holiday to you, by the way.
3: You you too. Thanks, Paul. It's always a pleasure. I really appreciate it. Thank
2: you, Chris. I really appreciate that. Um, And now uh, it's time for my PSA, which is um, that this program, What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights, as well as every other program on this network is brought to you by the one and only Heritage Radio Network a member supported nonprofit yes nonprofit we do not take money um nobody tells us what to say i mean we take money to run but we don't take money that tells us what we can and cannot say on this program so um that's why you can hear me say things like um you know chuck grassley is corrupt or you know whatever i feel like saying because because that's what i can do um (laughs) we are devoted to all things food in case you didn't know that there are 35 plus programs on this radio station um they cover every aspect of the industry whether it's um hospitality whether it's cooking whether it's recipe development uh history uh chemistry you name it it's covered this is the only radio network of its type, as far as I know, anywhere in the world. And indeed, we have a global audience. Um, But we need your support during the big end of year fundraiser. We really, really do need your support to grow. I, for instance, really want another freaking studio and another, you know, and more than one engineer on call so that we can do some pre-produced programming. Um, (laughs) And in order to do that, we need your money. So <clears throat> a contribution to this, um, to this program or any of the program will support all of our 35-plus weekly programs. But in addition to supporting these excellent programs, of which... You know, whether you like mine or not is immaterial. The other ones are great, too. Um, It also comes with exclusive member benefits like a monthly best of playlist. Some very, very swanky swag. Uh, You get discounted event tickets. You get members only parties. You get to come and meet and greet with the rest of the hosts. A lot of us are real experts in our field. So if you're truly interested in whatever it is, whether it's whether it's being a restaurateur or, or becoming a chef, whatever it is you want to know about the food industry, you can find it here on Heritage Radio Network. And at one of our host events, um, you can talk to those of us who really know what we're talking about. And so if you like good food and you love Good Food Radio... Throw a little money. Press the donate button, people. Come on. You can donate to Heritage Radio Network by going to heritageradionetwork.org. Press the donate button and give as much as you can, as much or as little. Uh, you know, every little bit ha- helps. Uh, the only money that all the money that we raise really just goes to like paying our rent and paying our full time staff. So, uh, you know, th- those guys need salaries. They need they need to be paid um so that we can continue to bring this kind of programming which is absolutely unique to the heritage radio network so be generous if you can and uh, thanks so much for listening and thanks again as always to my excellent sponsor new york um (laughs) state state grown Grown. and certified program Thank you, Dave. I don't know why I can't get that straight. It's my encroaching senility. I know. I see. You know, hey, you turn 60 and it's like your whole memory just disappears. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. Press the donate button and we'll see you next week. Next week, I have a total showstopper for you. Kathleen Merrigan, former undersecretary of state with Tom Vilsack for the first Obama term is going to be joining me. We're going to be talking about antitrust and much, much more. So please join me next week on Monday for Kathleen Merrigan. Thanks for listening today. Bye bye now.